continuing our series on this sixth Sunday of Easter through Matthew. For those of you who may be wondering, no, we will not finish by the end of May. And yes, should the Lord tarry, we will pick it up next year. We'll be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 26, and as you turn there, one, I want to encourage you to please be attentive to people who are around you, even those who you find here week after week sometimes do not know their way around Scripture, and so please help them to find their way to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew's message has been that in the person of Jesus, who grew up in Nazareth, in the person of Jesus, the promise of the unseen God has now been made visible and has now been fulfilled. The promised Messiah, the promised heir to David's throne has come. That long-promised kingdom has been inaugurated. That's what Matthew wants us to hear. And so, in telling this story, Matthew has structured his account, his gospel account, in three movements. The birth of Jesus, and then the, the lion's share of it in five discourses, and then this section that we're getting into here, the passion of Jesus. And in those five discourses, Matthew has used the teachings of Jesus to describe the kingdom. The life of God's shalom-making righteousness as it plays out in this world. The Sermon on the Mount. And the mission of God's shalom-making righteousness as it plays out through His people. The discourse on the mission of God's people. And he spends some time using parables to describe how this kingdom is different, structured differently, and operates differently than other kingdoms. And then he uses another set of parables to describe the values and habits that shape life of the citizens of such a kingdom. And then, as we have just finished up, he describes the end game of the king and his kingdom. And so in our passage before us today, Matthew is picking up a theme that he has been quietly hinting at throughout his gospel, and that is he pulls the curtain back so as to show us the workings of a great kingdom conspiracy, in fact, a great conspiracy of the kingdoms of this world that has been operating in the background in opposition to Jesus since the birth of Jesus. And now, that theme that has been playing quietly in the background throughout Matthew's account comes to front and center as Matthew moves us to the climax of his gospel account. So read with me, Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up 
to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Brothers and sisters, this is a passage of good news for us, his people. So let's go to him in prayer. By your spirit, O God, rescue us from our distractions. Turn our eyes, the eyes of our heart, turn our attention to this, your word. For by your word comes life. Grant us courage to see it. Grant us courage to hear it. Shape us by it. Change us by it. Protect us from speaking error. Protect us from hearing error. And root us firmly in the person of your Son, Jesus, for we prayed in his name. Amen. Do you ever have one of those days or one of those weeks where you are convinced that there is this massive secret conspiracy set up to thwart your every plan and movement? I do. Conspiracy theories abound. But let me just give you some of the conspiracy theories um, that I believe are in existence that I encounter almost every day. For example, I am firmly convinced that there is someone who is given word that I'm on the road. And their task is to drive just in front of me with a little device. And just as they pass the traffic light, they press the device and the traffic light turns red. Every time. I know. Probably one of you. I'm pretty convinced of it. And then there's, the, uh, then there's the conspiracy. You know you've had it. And you know it's true. Don't deny it. It's true. When there's a traffic jam, everyone is in the know about which lane is going to move fastest, except for you. Right? It's going to be that lane. Nope, it was your lane. It's going to be that lane. Nope, it was that lane. <sighs> Burns me up. They're out to get you. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're not out to get you. On a slightly more serious note, there is the conspiracy that many of you in this congregation know about. In fact, I think you're part of it. And that is this. That if any given area in this country needs significant precipitation... Just have the Gilchrists invite another family to go to that area and camp. <laughs> because there will be a hurricane, there will be a tornado, there will be a blizzard. Northern California has just sent me a letter to say, would you please invite somebody to come camping in Northern California? We need the weather. 
I am convinced of it. So much so, in fact, that I will not actually invite anybody to go camping anymore. Conspiracy theories abound. Sorry, I love you all. I just won't go camping with you. Conspiracy theories abound. Part of uh, my looking around had me looking up conspiracy theories. Did you know that according to a 2013 national survey, there are about 12 million Americans who, I can't, I can't even bring myself to say this one, who believe, who believe that the world is run by reptilian elites. <laughs> Justin Bieber is one of them. I am not kidding you. There was an article posted in Australia about, about eyewitnesses who actually saw Justin Bieber transform into his lizard and back. Because he's part of the reptilian elite. In fact, there's another site that posted another article which was since taken down in which it was a video that surfaced that showed Justin Bieber blinking like a lizard. Proves the point. That's it. Our world is controlled by reptilian elites. And given the way some of our leaders look, we might actually believe that. More believable, however, is there's this, there's this notion that a secret group. Now, I, I recognize that I'm putting you at risk by sharing the secret with you. And so um, I may have to kill you afterwards. But there is apparently a secret group known as what? The Illuminati. Oh, we've heard about the Illuminati that are controlling the world. This goes by various names. Sometimes it's the Freemasons. Sometimes it's the Jews. Sometimes it's the Bilderberg. Sometimes it's the globalists. Those evil globalists. Here's another one. Chemtrails. You know those lines behind flying jets? Did you know that those are really chemicals by which they are controlling our thoughts? Did you know that? That's why we're such a peaceful nation. <laughs> Here's one that will um, break many of your hearts. J.K. Rowling isn't real. She's not. That was all just a, a hoax because um, they wanted to like, like twist the minds of Christian children. I'm kidding! Conspiracy theories abound. In an age of cynicism that suspects even the possibility of truth, conspiracy theories abound because they gain traction. And it's not just that we become victims of the confusion and fear and doubt and suspicion that so-called conspiracy theories so It's that these conspiracy theories actually train us to participate in them. 
wittingly or unwittingly. We suspect all people and all claims to truth and reality and fact and imagine truth and reality claims to themselves be a part, as we were just talking about in Sunday school, of a large conspiracy to brainwash us and to take us captive. And nobody could make me believe that there is an absolute knowable truth. Not only do we become victims of this evaporation of truth in a world of cynicism, Believing that wonder and worship, therefore, is naive and boredom and suspicion is wise. We become unwitting participants in actually perpetuating the lies. And just because conspiracy theories as such abound, which undermine truth, love, and life, does not mean, however, that they're not that there are not actual conspiracies. It's just that there are fewer than we imagine, and most of them are of no consequence. But some of them change the world. In fact, the proliferation of conspiracy theories itself is part of a larger conspiracy of misinformation and disinformation to sow doubt, to sow fear, to sow confusion, to sow distrust, to sow suspicion, to sow animosity, and to sow division among God's people and throughout his world. In order to keep us paralyzed in fear and distracted and blinded from the real conspiracy. To undermine the coming king and his kingdom and enslave his citizens. Sometimes, though, we find that the conspiracies in which we participate and by which we are victimized, like the conspiracy of hatred and evil perpetrated against Joseph by his brothers, is somehow taken as though there's a counter-conspiracy happening. And it is, becomes used as a part of someone else's conspiracy. So it's as though we become double victims. Someone else's conspiracy to turn our own evil intentions on their head and in fact accomplished by them its own intentions for our good. Truly, at such times, it is a good thing when our own plans fall apart and are themselves, that is to say, the failures of those plans are themselves made a part of someone else's conspiracy to actually rescue us. To misquote the leader of the A-team, there are times when we should exclaim, I love it when a good plan falls apart. Sometimes, as is the case of the great cosmic conspiracy we call the gospel, 
in which the three persons of the triune God conspire among themselves to destroy the kingdoms of our world in order to secure for us the wonders of his own kingdom. Sometimes it is their very presence that is confusing to us. When our dreams and our plans fall apart, we usually think of it as a catastrophe. This is not how my day was supposed to go. This is not how my week was supposed to go. This is not how my life was supposed to go. This is not where I was supposed to be at this point in my life. And we think of these things as a catastrophe. But as Tolkien may have said, the failure and dismantling of our dreams and our plans in light of the greater cosmic gospel catastrophe is a you catastrophe, a catastrophe that abounds to the glory of God and to the good of us. A good disaster that relates, results in greater glory and greater accomplishment. Look at it. Verse, chapter 26, look at verses 3 through 5. There it is. The conspiracy comes front and center. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So there it is. The powers beginning to align. We've seen this happening throughout the gospel. The powers beginning to assemble themselves and trying to plot to figure out how to marginalize Jesus, how to silence Jesus, how to destroy Jesus. And Jesus is just a rabbi from Nazareth. And as the powers begin to align against him, what hope is there? He's no resources. Fewer and fewer people are singing his praises. It's interesting that Matthew does not include the Pharisees because the Pharisees have been a noted part of this developing conspiracy for a while at least as Matthew has been telling the story. And yet here it's the chief priests and the elders of the people that are gathered in the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. And the reason for that, many would argue, is that the Pharisees' argument with Jesus was more the argument of a wayward rabbi. You're, you're one of us and you're going astray. Straighten up and fly right is the nature of their argument. We see this plot developing against Jesus and against his teaching and against his movement. In Matthew 2, we see it again hinted at. In Matthew 4, we see it again in Matthew 12 and 16 and then 21 as well as in 22. So what is happening here is not new. It's certainly not new to Matthew's theme. We've seen it coming. But it ought not to have been new to us at all. And it ought not to have been new to the disciples, although it apparently was. Because it is a theme that has been developed throughout Scripture since the days of the garden. 
It is the theme of how the spirit of every age conspires with the powers and principalities of that age against God and against his anointed and against his purposes. This is the conspiracy we see unfolding against Joseph. This is the conspiracy we see unfolding against Daniel, unfolding against Jeremiah, unfolding against Ezekiel and against Nehemiah and then later against Paul. All of those and more besides are historic demonstrations of what the psalmist refers to in Psalm 2. That the raging nations have risen up and joined together in schemes against God and against his anointed. What is happening here in verses 3 through 5 is not new. It's not unique It is not unique to a special class of evil people. Rather, the conspiracy has deep roots in the heart of each man, woman, and child. Which, in case you didn't know, includes those of us here gathered in this room. We are all natural-born parties to this conspiracy against Jesus and against his purposes. I think of Judas. This is the screaming example from among Jesus' own chosen twelve. And we're going to read about him in just a little bit where Judas actually self-consciously enters into this conspiracy with the chief priests and elders of the people. But you remember that in how the Gospels tell the account, Judas, the story of Judas unfolds right alongside the story of Peter, who out of his own fear and out of his own foolishness and out of his own ignorance, also unwittingly became a part of this conspiracy. No, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Leave me alone. Never met the man. I told this story just a few weeks ago, but it continues to resonate in my mind. When I was in Ghana a couple uh, months ago, had the privilege, if you can call it that, of um, going to one of the slave castles. In, um, on the coast there, on the Gold Coast. And you know the story, I think I, re- I told you, but um, the story is that all of these slave traders would actually go and they would capture these slaves from hundreds of miles away and sometimes march them as long as two months to the, to the slave castle where they would then be branded by whichever company the slave trader was dealing with or represented. They'd be divided up, stacked like cordwood in horrible conditions. And you remember me telling you that in this particular castle, which was started and built by the Portuguese, but then later purchased by the Dutch, when the Dutch came in, they needed a place of worship. And so three stories above where the slave women were held, they built a sanctuary where they sang praises to God. Out one side, they would look at the beautiful ocean vistas, and through the windows of the other side would come the sounds 
of the women far below. What a stunning thing. As a direct heir of the Dutch Reformed tradition, I, I find myself stunned. But then, as we went down into the castle, we went to this place which was the branding room. And um, slaves were branded there. Some were branded with the insignia of the Dutch East Indies Company, sometimes with the um, West Indies Company. I forget the various companies. But then one of the brands was the brand SPG. SPG. The tour guide mentioned it in passing and went on. And I said, excuse me, what did you just say? It was SPG. I said, SPG? What does that stand for? Oh, that stands for one of the most prominent traders of slaves. Really? Yes, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. And I found myself thinking, how is it possible for the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel to be involved and in thinking that the involvement in this heinous crime against humanity that lasted for hundreds of years could possibly be seen as something that propagates the gospel. Well, because the spirit of the age is very good at deceiving us. and very good at making us victims of his conspiracies to actually undermine and oppose the ministry of Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. And I got to thinking, how is the spirit of the age blinding me? How is the spirit of the age swept me up into its conspiracy? How is it that I'm understanding and preaching and living the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that it actually undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who is it that I'm branding? Who is it that I'm marginalizing? Whose lives am I profiting off? This conspiracy is insidious. And it's not just wicked chief priests and elders. It's a conspiracy that rises from within our hearts. Which is why it is so stunning to see how Matthew pitches this climactic event. Notice how he starts. Jesus had finished saying all of these things. That is, he had finished these five discourses on the kingdom, the king, and life in the kingdom. And then he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. Comma, at least in most English translations, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The question is this, what is the relationship between those two parts of that expression? 
You know the Passover is coming. Yeah, yeah, Passover is coming. Okay, we got it. We're going to go in. We're going to prepare the feast. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Doesn't calculate. Jesus has said this three times in the last week or so leading up to their entrance into Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be delivered up. We're going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed and suffered. We're going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be killed. We're going to Jerusalem. Blind, deaf. But now Matthew, after the events, is looking back and he's recognizing that what Jesus was saying there was that the Passover is coming and the time to which the Passover looked for hundreds of years is here. The Passover lamb himself is to be offered up. The disciples, as they see in Matthew's account here, 26, 27, and 28, as they see the events of this conspiracy unfolding, they're stunned. They're thinking to to themselves, as the disciples on the road to Emmaus tell us, this is a catastrophe. All of our hopes, all of our dreams, shattered. We're going to be destroyed. And now... Sometime later, Matthew is looking back and he's saying, no, that was Jesus's point. This is not a catastrophe. This is a you catastrophe. This is the catastrophe by which the world is being remade that the that the Lord promised from ages and ages ago. Jesus says, now is the time. This is the time I've been telling you about here. Jesus is saying, you know, and I know, now is the time. It's not just that Jesus could read the tea leaves and know what was happening. It's that Jesus knew it because Jesus planned it. This catastrophe that was unfolding is unfolding according to his design. He's the one that holds the cards. He's the one that is playing every move. It's like when I was playing chess with my dad. He would make his move, and I would make my move, and like the Jedi chess player that he was, he would go, I'd take my move back. And I'd move this, take my move back, and I'd move that, Take my move back. I move this. Good. Then his move. And I'd make my move. That is not the move you think it is. And that's what's going on here. You see, dad was, my dad was playing both sides of the board in that game. And that's what Matthew realizes now, after the fact. Life is lived forward, but it's understood backward. And now, looking back through the lens of the resurrection, Matthew understands Jesus is playing both sides of the board here. I've known about it. I've intended it. I planned it. 
This is not something that is happening to me. It is something that I am doing for you. The Passover is coming. You remember, the Passover is the great celebration of God's mighty act of redemption in rescuing his people from Egypt. And the angel of death would pass over the Jewish houses that had blood on the doorposts. And so every year from then on out, the Lord had them celebrate that. Now, for years and years, the Jews celebrated in memory of God's great redemption. But that redemption and the celebration of it year after year and year after year was not a memory. But it was a prophetic anticipation. Of this day. It wasn't just remember what God did and maybe one day he'll act again. It was this is our God. This is how he acts. And when you when you play out the Passover drama after year after year after year, what you are playing out is the way our God will act in the future. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is saying to his disciples now. All of those years of practicing the Passover drama have come, and now the game is up. It's time to play. And now the Paschal Lamb is delivered for sacrifice. You see, it's not that Jesus was like the Paschal Lamb, it was like the Paschal Lambs were like Jesus. He is the reality, He is the substance of our hope, He is the substance of Israel's hope. And that is what's going on here as Matthew opens up this climactic account in the last several chapters. He's saying the Passover feast is now here and celebrated because Jesus, the long hungered for Paschal lamb, has been delivered. This lamb is not led to the slaughter. This lamb guides the slaughterers to his slaughter. This lamb actually reaches out, as it were, and takes the knife, the hand holding the knife, and it says, this is how you cut the lamb's throat. This is what is happening in this climactic part of Matthew chapters 26 through 28. You see, this is the great turning point. 26, 1 through 2, this is the great turning point of all history. This is the great but God of Ephesians chapter 2. This is the stunning reversal of, of Isaiah chapter 6, where in the face of God's blinding holiness, Isaiah fully expects to be destroyed, but God comes to him. And he takes a coal from the altar and he says, your sins are forgiven and you're washed clean. This is Matthew's way of saying that. Or think of, the, think of the evil conspiratorial scheme of Haman to destroy the Jews in Persia. You remember that he hated them. He hated, um, oh, now I'm blanking on his name. What's his name? Thank you. Mordecai. He wanted to destroy Mordecai and all of his people. So he hatches this amazing scheme and it's going great. But God has in the right place and at the right time 
a timid and terrified woman by the name of Esther. But God. Or perhaps most clearly and most stunningly, think about the stunning words of Joseph to his brothers as recorded for us in Genesis chapter 50. You remember what happened. Jacob has died, that is their father, and the brothers of Joseph now quite reasonably think Joseph has the power to take his vengeance on them because now dad is dead. Because they have perpetrated horrible evils against him. Horrible wickedness against him. There's not a single person in this room who would blame him for taking his vengeance upon them. He would have been justified in doing it. He had the position and the power to do it. Yet, he was aware of dimensions of his life circumstances and the realities of the world around him of which they and we, when we're honest, don't seem to be aware at the moment of their most profound fear. And so Joseph reveals the unseen, that the unseen realities that shape the way he understands life. And he says, do not fear. After all, am I in the place of God? But listen to what he says. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. There's a lot to be said about that expression. Because we think something is less evil if it's not intended and, and painfully evil if it is intended. The brothers intended it. They planned it. They schemed it. They conspired together to destroy Joseph. And what they intended and conspired to do to destroy Joseph God intended as part of his greater conspiracy for their good. See, we tend to look at this and say, oh, all things work out for Joseph, and now he's the king of, of Egypt, and so that's a wonderful thing. Praise the Lord. Romans chapter 8 fulfilled. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is includes that, but it's much bigger. And he is saying what you intended for evil, God intended for your good. He took their evil intentions and flipped them on their heads so that they may survive. Why? Because our God made a promise. And it was a promise to love this people and to care for this people. And make them a people of his blessing. That is a stunning you catastrophe. All of their plans came to naught. So that his plans might come to fruition. That is a catastrophe of epic proportions. That none of us can really think or imagine. That is the gospel. That is the great gospel conspiracy of the triune God's glorious love in Jesus. That he takes our worst moments, he takes our worst failures, he takes our worst intentions. And he flips them around on our head that we may know his best.
That is what is happening in the first two verses of Matthew chapter 26. Kids, I know you don't understand it now, but the Passover is coming and it's time for the Lamb of God to be slaughtered so that this great conspiracy could be turned on its head and all things can be made new. Brothers and sisters, that happens on a cosmic level, that happens on a macro level, and it happens on a micro level. It happens in your day-to-day plans. It happens in traffic jams. It happens at traffic lights. One of the things I love to do because I'm a self-righteous, I can't say the rest of that person, is just to go slowly from traffic light to traffic light and then look at the car next to me who had sped around me, cut me off in traffic because they just had to get there. How'd that work out for you? I'm right here. Because there is a greater conspiracy of God's amazing love at work in our world to make all things new that incorporate our foolishness, incorporate our sinfulness and the foolishness and the sinfulness of those around us in such a way that it redounds to his glory and causes us to flourish as his people. So Father, 